If you have a Bible with you, let me encourage you to turn to the book of Acts. We're going to be in Acts chapter 21 this morning, and we are continuing our verse-by-verse study through this incredible book of Acts about the early church, and the title for this morning's sermon is Away With Him, Away With Him, and I think you'll see that here in our text as we read through Acts chapter 21. We're looking this morning again at verses 27 through verse 40. Here's what Luke writes in Acts 21, 27, he says, when the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, help. This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut and they were seeking to kill him. Word came to the tribune of the cohort that all of, the, all of Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and addressed him and, ordered, and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another, And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came up and when he came to the steps, he was actually cried, he was actually carried, excuse me, by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people were crying out, away with him. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And he said, yes, do you know Greek? You are not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness. Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Sicilia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language saying, that leaves us with a cliffhanger, doesn't it? So let me pray, and we'll jump into our time together. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the joy of singing songs to the risen Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And thank you for the courage of Paul, as we've seen over and over again, who's willing to preach the gospel, to love the saints, to face whatever consequences that he would, so that Christ would be preached. And I pray that you would help us to learn what you want us to learn this morning from this passage, that we might apply it to our life and live it out. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as this chapter clearly indicates, religion is not Christianity. The legalistic traditions of the Jews drove them to this rebellious anarchy more than once. On this occasion, it occurred because people believed that the worst about Paul and about what was taught about him, and so it incited a riot by things that these Jewish people didn't know for sure. And even in our days, sometimes people elect drug dealers and felons to public office and consistently turn the other way when politicians live immoral and even illegal lives. 
And we learn from all of this that people generally get the leaders that they deserve. While in the German city of Munich in 1971, actor Lee Frick was playing the part of Adolf Hitler in a film. He thought it would be an amusing idea to walk through the town dressed up in his character. And so the public relations people of the movie picked up on this idea and they announced that Hitler would be coming. And in an amazing, indeed an amazing uh, display of, of emotion, old men showed up with their medals of war and women wept and waved their handkerchiefs. At the end of the evening, Frick reflected, the Germans still have Hitler in their hearts. Today, people follow the most bizarre religious cults led by the most immoral and anti-biblical false teachers. We shouldn't be surprised then that after working even in Jerusalem for several years, the tribune here, and we'll come to know him as his name, Claudius Lysias, the Roman commander in our text, he had no esteem for the Jews. I mean, there in his post, he witnessed riot after riot, terrorist after terrorist, people willing to form a mob at the first shout of agitation. Christians are to be ambassadors of peace and protectors of law and order. Cruel Roman justice formed a better vehicle for Paul's communication of the gospel than the religious mobs that he faced here in this city. If civility has become a lost art, as some suggest, Christians ought to be among those most interested in returning it to the public arena. If we are witnessing pastors and Christian leaders shout and call attention to themselves unduly, then maybe we better give a second thought to the way that Christ behaved himself in the midst of chaos. Jesus faced abuse and persecution in the most dreadful of ways, but his response was a gracious, dignified response that serves as an example for us all to follow. 1 Peter 1, or chapter 2, 21 through 23 says, For to this you have been called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you would walk in his footsteps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued to entrust himself to him who judges justly. And in our text this morning, we're going to see how the Apostle Paul responded in a similar way. There was a respect for authority. There is a clear address of the issues at hand. And there is no effort to resist arrest, but rather a willingness to follow God's plan and his purpose for redemption. Paul was a class act in the way that he represented Christ throughout his arrest and throughout the, the illegal trials that he would end up facing. And so this morning, we're going to look at Paul's arrest, and I want us to see three headings. Number one, we're going to see the accusations of the Jewish mob. Number two, the arrest of the Roman soldiers. And then number three, the address from the apostle Paul. So let's start with number one this morning, the accusations of the Jewish mob. And your first blank there is that Paul is teaching against the Jews. At least that's what he's accused of, of teaching against the Jews. Look at verse 27. In the beginning of verse 28, it says, when the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeking him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid their hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, help. This man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people. 
They're accusing him of teaching against the Jews. Now remember, Paul was there at the urging of James and the elders. He had agreed to some type of compromise. Not that he compromised the gospel, but he was willing to undergo those seven days of purification as he was also sponsoring four men who were finishing up their Nazarite vow. And by sponsoring these men who were going through that vow, he was demonstrating that he was not against Jewish culture, he was just against Jewish legalism. Paul never taught that the Jews couldn't eat kosher or be circumcised or observe certain feasts. He just taught that these things can't save you and that they're not required under the new covenant like they were under the old covenant. The Jewish elders thought that if Paul went through this purification ritual, that this would silence those who falsely claimed that Paul taught Jewish Christians were to abandon all Jewish customs and all Jewish culture. Plus, Paul had also returned to Israel from the Gentile lands and going through some of the purification would help the Jews see that he still identified somewhat with his own Jewish heritage and did indeed have a respect for certain Jewish practices. So that brings us again to verse 27. When those seven days were almost completed, Paul faced his old enemies, the Judaizers. Now, Judaizers are not Christian Jews, but unsaved Jews who placed more emphasis on the old covenant than they ever would on Christ. Therefore, they were blind to salvation being by grace alone. They were blind to the sufficiency of Christ's substitutionary atonement. And they were blind to the fact that Jesus had fulfilled the law and therefore it was no longer necessary. The Judaizers then, in a sense, hated Christ They hated Paul, and they hated anyone who would welcome Gentiles into the covenant community. And so when they saw him in the temple, Paul's enemies wasted no time seizing their opportunity to spread their lies and to attack Paul's ministry. And so the word there in verse 27 says that they, seeing him in the temple, they stirred up the whole crowd. That stirred up means they they caused dismay. They they caused confusion and consternation. They wanted to confound the crowd. This was actually the sixth time in the book of Acts that we've read where a crowd was incited against Paul and against his ministry. On the first missionary journey, there were the Jews who came from Pisidian Antioch and Iconium to Lystra, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and drug him out of the city and left him for dead. On the second missionary journey, there was the arrest of Paul and Silas in Philippi, where the owners of the slave girl saw that their hope of gain was gone, and so they put them into an inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. After Paul and Silas had escaped and went to Thessalonica, there were some wicked men who formed a mob and set that city in an uproar. Then they left Thessalonica for Berea, and Judaizers showed up there, also agitating and stirring up the crowds. And then on Paul's third missionary journey, there was the notorious riot in Ephesus, stirred up by the silversmith by the name of Demetrius, where the crowd was enraged, if you remember, and they went into the amphitheater, and they shouted for two hours against Paul. And so all that to say that Paul was somewhat accustomed to the Judaizers taking their shot at him. 
They had a way of spreading rumors and stirring up crowds and inciting violence wherever Paul went. And as in the previous places, the crowd laid their hands on him and they claimed in the beginning of verse 28 that Paul, look at verse 28, they're claiming that, that, that they need help because Paul now is somehow teaching everyone everywhere against the people. Now, there is no way that Paul could literally be teaching everyone everywhere. This is a bit of an exaggeration, but the point would be that this is a lie that they taught that Paul was absolutely teaching against the Jewish people. And so we were reminded last week that that certainly was not the case. Paul did teach against Jewish legalism, but he never taught against the Jewish people. Paul loved his own people so much that he said in Romans 9, 1 through 5, that he would die in their place so that they could go to heaven and he would go to hell in a sense because he loved them so much. Even in Romans chapter 10, verse 1, Paul said, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God is for them that they may be saved. So he loved the Jewish people, and he appreciated parts of Jewish culture and custom. But the Judaizers had a deaf ear to Paul's true desire, and they were acting as though Paul had committed some act of blasphemy, and therefore they called the crowd to account to help them deal with it. And the Judaizers had made similar accusations against Stephen, who was martyred in Acts 7, when they said that Stephen had spoken blasphemous words against Moses. And so now this same crowd is acting in the same way, accusing Paul basically of being anti-Semitic. And so they are accusing him of being a traitor against his own people. And they're accusing Paul of leading the Jews astray instead of leading them to eternal life. And Paul nowhere again taught that the Jewish believers were to forsake their customs, but merely that Gentiles were not to be pressured to observe them. The second accusation the Judaizers made, so number one, it was against, they said Paul was against the Jewish people. Number two, they said that Paul's teaching against the Mosaic law. And you see that there again in the middle of verse 28, that Paul's teaching everyone everywhere against the people and against the law. And so this was a particularly serious accusation since to teach against the law was to teach against God himself, who was the lawgiver. And in this setting, Jewish people were even more zealous for the law as the end of verse 20 talks about that, that there were a lot of Christians there, but they were very zealous for the law. And so even though it was the Feast of Pentecost, which originally was designed to be a celebration of the first fruits of the harvest, it had also become a celebration of the giving of the law to Moses on Mount Sinai. And so charging Paul at this time with teaching against the law was sure to infuriate the crowds. And so what did Jesus teach us about the law? Well, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught us in Matthew 5, 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill them. And so this is the correct direction where Jesus is saying, I'm not here to abolish the law. I'm here to fulfill the law. And as fulfilling the law, the law will now expire. The law will now reach its expiration date in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. And so Paul understood that and elaborated even further on Christ's relationship with the law. When Paul taught in Ephesians 2, 14 through 16, he said about Christ, for he himself is our peace, 
who made us both one as he has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So to the Ephesians, he's saying, hey, the two people, Jews and Gentiles, we're now one because Christ has come and died that we can now, the two men can be made one man, the church. He reconciled us both in God into one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. That's what Paul taught. There should be no more hostility between Jews and Gentiles. We should be one in Christ. And I would say that when Jesus died on the cross, he in that moment abolished every barrier between man and God, and he also abolished every barrier between the man and his neighbor, between the Jew and the Greek. And so this was a reference here where that, um, that Ephesians 2 text talks about how Christ's death abolished the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. And that phrase, expressed in ordinances, was a reference to the feasts and to the sacrifices and the offerings and, and the laws of cleanliness and purification and all other such outward commandments for the unique separation between Israel and the other nations. And so in that moment, when Christ died, all of that was to be abolished. God's moral law continued, but this idea of there being a separation between the Jews and the Gentiles had all been completely abolished. Third accusation against Paul was they said that Paul was teaching against the temple. And you see it there again in verse 28 that he's teaching against the people, they said, against the law, and against this place. Keep in mind, they're in Jerusalem. They're there at the temple, clear reference to the temple here, that the Jewish people held this temple in high regard because it was the focal point of their worship. And therefore, any accusation against the temple would be considered as blasphemy. Jesus and Stephen were also falsely accused of speaking against the temple, and they both died. And so the idea here is that the Judaizers are bringing this capital punishment crime against Paul, hoping that he would follow in the footsteps of Jesus and Stephen and be killed as well. But you need to make sure you understand this morning that Paul wasn't preaching against the temple. In fact, he was sponsoring in this very moment for Jews that were taking the Nazarite vow and their ceremony that was being observed there in the temple. Remember, he paid for their animal sacrifices, and he was going through those last seven days of this purification process himself, and he wasn't doing these things as a means of obedience to the old covenant law, but rather as a willingness to humble himself and to become all things to all men so that he might win them to Christ, to substantiate these general accusations. Hey, Paul's preaching against the people and against the law and against the temple. They come up with one specific thing to help further plead their case. And in your next blank, you see what that is. They said that Paul has defiled the temple by bringing in it a Gentile. They're saying that Paul brought a Gentile into the temple. And you see that again at the end of verse 28, where they said, moreover, He even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut." Now, this charge, this accusation that they're making is absolutely absurd. 
While taking part in the purification rite, Paul would have hardly defiled the temple by bringing a Gentile into the court of the Jews. In fact, in order to do so, Paul would have had to have brought Trophimus, the Ephesian Gentile mentioned there by name, past the court of the Gentiles into the court of the Jews. And between these two areas was a wall with a gate. And to go through that doorway would have cost Trophimus his life. And the Romans actually allowed the Jews to execute any Gentile who entered in there, even if they were a Roman citizen. There was an inscription that was found that solemnly warned, quote, no Gentile shall enter within the partition and barrier surrounding the temple, and whosoever is caught shall be responsible to himself for his subsequent death. So they knew that if Paul did bring Tropimus past that, uh, that barricade, when it went, the difference between the, the, court of the, the court of the Gentiles and the court of the Jews, and the court area had common area, you had court of the Gentiles, court of the Jews, court of the women, court of the men, holy place, most holy place. It just kind of kept going in concentric areas. Now, I, I don't believe that Paul obviously would have ever endangered his friend's life. And if the Judaizers had have really seen Trophimus there, it was Trophimus that was supposed to die, not Paul because he was the Greek that went in there. It wasn't Paul who was there. This is just an outrageous accusation to try to stir up the crowd to somehow get them to pre perform some type of capital punishment upon Paul. They're upset. They believe that he's taught against the people, against the law, and against the temple, and it's working. False or not, the accusations spread like wildfire, and soon the whole city was aroused and rushed together to the vicinity of the temple. And trying to rid the temple of this blasphemer, the people together ran and they seized Paul, and they dragged him out of the temple, and they shut the gates, and they're getting ready to kill him right there. The Jewish temple guards may have even helped shove Paul outside of the temple so that his pending death would not defile the temple. The religious zeal had overcome the crowd and they were no doubt eager to put Paul to death. And so the infuriated and irrational mob began to beat Paul to death as verse 32 says. Too impatient to drag him out of the city entirely and to stone him to death as they had done for Stephen. They were intending to put Paul to death on the spot. And they would have succeeded, but God providentially intervened to protect the apostle. Help had arrived in the form of Roman soldiers. Many in Jerusalem believed mistakenly that Paul was off base in his teaching, and they had heard and propagated, again, these slanderous hearsay about Paul, misinformation, and lies, whether unintentional or intentional, slander and gossip can go a long way to hurt someone's reputation. Consider this illustration about what slander and gossip can do. In an eastern land, a woman repeated a bit of gossip about a neighbor, and predictably, within a short amount of time, the whole town knew her story. The slandered person was deeply hurt and most unhappy. But when the lady responsible for spreading the rumor learned that it was completely untrue, she went to a wise old sage to find out a way that she could do repair to the damage. And after listening to her problem, he said, go to the marketplace and purchase a fowl and have it killed. 
Then on your way home, pluck its feathers out one by one and drop them along the path. Though surprised by this unusual advice, the woman did as she was told. The next day, she was informed, or she informed the man that she had done as he had instructed, now go and collect those feathers and bring them back to me, the wise sage said. So the lady followed the same path, but as you might imagine, to her dismay, the wind had blown all the feathers away. And after searching all day long, she found only two or three at most and brought them in hand. You see, the old wise man said, it is easy to drop them, but impossible to bring them all back. Likewise, it doesn't take much to spread a false rumor, but you can never completely undo the wrong. We as Christians certainly need to take that lesson to heart. It was this rumor spread by Judaizers about something that Paul did that he never did. And if some of these were even genuine Christian Jews, they were swayed by the Judaizers to believe that Paul was indeed teaching against the Jews, against Moses, and against the temple. They, they should have taken the responsibility to go directly to Paul and to let him clearly articulate his convictions from the truths of Scripture. Instead, they chose to believe the lie. They chose to bend his words, and they chose to go with the crowd instead of standing up for the truth. Just a reminder, don't, don't be fickle. Don't make assumptions do some research, do, do your homework, and if possible, go directly to the source to avoid such disgrace. Well, now that we've seen the accusations of the Jewish mob, let's look secondly at the arrest of the Roman soldiers. Your next blank says the quick action taken by the commander, verses 31 and 32. And as they were seeking to kill him, the word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they had the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. And so here the headquarters, as you might know, of the Roman soldiers was located at Fort Antonia, which is a military tower located on one of the corners of the Temple Mount. And from its high and proximate location, one could easily survey the activities going on in the various courts of the temple. And so during major religious holidays and festivals, the Romans would have had a clear view of the temple area and especially being watchful. And it would have not have taken very long for the watchmen on the wall to identify and respond to the riot taking place just below them. The Jews didn't want to just beat Paul, though. They, they wanted to kill him. And so they were seeking to dispose of Paul and his preaching once and for all. But his word came quickly to the tribune or the commander of the Roman soldiers. The word tribune here in the ESV, commander in the NASB, comes from the Greek word that literally, literally means 1,000. The tribune commanded the entire Roman cohort of a thousand men that were stationed there in the fort. In Acts 23, 26, we're told that his name is Claudius Lysias. So this commander, and if you look at Acts 23, 26, his name is Claudius Lysias. He was the, the ranking Roman official in Jerusalem when the governor, whose official residence was in Caesarea, was not in the city. It was Lysias that was the Roman official most concerned about keeping order in Jerusalem since his main job was to keep the Jews under peaceful submission. 
And so having received the report that all Jerusalem was in confusion, naturally, Lysias acted quickly and decisively to put a stop to the riot. And at once he took soldiers, and the verse says, and centurions, and ran down the steps from the Atonia fortress to the court of the Gentiles where the enraged crowd was beating Paul to death. Because of the plural use of the word centurions, we know that he had at least 200 soldiers with him. He was was the commander over 1,000, but he had at least 200, two centurions with him there in that area to stop this particular riot. And this massive show of force broke up the riot and undoubtedly saved Paul's life. And when the crowd saw the commander and the soldiers, verse 32 says, they stopped beating Paul since they probably didn't want to be arrested themselves. Then we move on to verse 33, your next blank, the fulfillment of prophecy. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. So not knowing exactly what was going on, but seeing that Paul was at the center of the controversy, Lysias arrested Paul. And as verse 38 will demonstrate a little bit later, we see how the commander assumed incorrectly that Paul was an Egyptian terrorist. Lysias had Paul arrested here in verse 33, and he bound him not with one, but with two chains. And the two chains here indicates that he believed that Paul was some type of violent criminal who must doubtedly uh, be constrained so that there would be no means of escape. And so he then inquired to who he was and what he had done. Now remember, this, this is an exact fulfillment of prophecy. Surely you remember how we discussed Agabus foretold this a little bit earlier. Look up at verses 10 and 11 in the same chapter. While they were staying for many days, this is outside of Jerusalem, getting ready to head into Jerusalem, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. So that prophecy of Acts 21 Verse 11, by Agabus, came exactly true. Rest assured that what is prophesied through a true prophet of God will come to pass. Unique among all books ever written, the Bible accurately foretells specific events in detail. Days, weeks, years, and sometimes centuries before they occur. Bible scholars tell us that approximately 2,500 prophecies appear in the pages of Scripture, and about 2,000 of them have already been fulfilled to the letter without a single error. Joshua prophesied that Jericho would be rebuilt by one man, and in Joshua 6.26, he also said that the man's eldest son would die when the reconstruction began, and that his youngest son would die when the work reached its completion. About five centuries later, this prophecy found its fulfillment in the life and family of a man named Hiel. The prophet Jeremiah foretold in Jeremiah 25:11 that the ancient Jewish nation would be conquered and carried off as slaves in Babylon for a period of 70 years. We know this happened during the Babylonian captivity. 
The prophet Daniel proclaimed in Daniel 9, 25 and 26 that Israel's long-awaited Messiah would begin his public ministry 483 years after the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. He further predicted that the Messiah would be cut off, killed, and that this event would take place prior to the second destruction of Jerusalem. An abundant documentation from the Bible, as well as from history, affirmed that these prophecies were perfectly fulfilled in the life and the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And so with all of these prophecies and many more coming true, we should never doubt that God will do what he said he will do. There is coming judgment and there is coming joy. The Bible foretells of eternal punishment for the wicked, but it also foretells of eternal pardon for the repentant. The Bible promises that God will not give you more than you can handle, that God's promises of eternal life are for all who believe. God promises that he will never leave you and never forsake you. And the fact that all of these biblical prophecies come true make the Bible and help us understand it as it is a reliable book that you can bet your life on. So that's an encouraging thing, even though we're discouraged in one sense that Paul's arrested and bound, we know that was prophesied, just like Jesus said, hey, it's been told that I will be, one of my friends will forsake me. And it's a, it's a shame that Judas forsook Jesus, and yet the fulfillment of prophecy is necessary for God to accomplish the plan that he's revealed from the prophets of old. And then we read in verses 34 and 36, the violence of the crowd the violence of the crowd. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing and some another. And as he counted, or excuse me, and as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when they went, came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. So as Lysias, the tribune, was trying to get a clear answer on who Paul was and what he had done, all he received was confusion and chaos. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing and some another. And so realizing that he couldn't get all the facts straight in the midst of this uproar, he ordered Paul to be brought up into the barracks. And there he probably intended to question the apostle in private and possibly, if necessary, to even torture him in order to extract a confession. In many ways, this scene reminds us of what had happened to Paul in the riot in Ephesus. Acts 19 talks about how the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater and dragged Paul with them. And then it says that some cried out one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not even know why they had come together. The truth is, the devil works in the midst of chaos. But God is not a God of confusion. Satan is the father of lies, but God is a God of truth. Lucifer loves deception, but God in his word will always point us to the path of righteousness. Jesus said in John 10, 10, the thief comes to kill, to steal, and to destroy. But I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly. The captain in Acts 21 actually thought that Paul was an Egyptian rebel. 
Verse 38 again discusses that, who, who was wanted by the Romans. And when Lysias interrogated the people, they could not explain what caused the riot because many of them didn't really know. The original troublemakers must have escaped during the excitement knowing that they could actually be, uh, be arrested as well if they wouldn't be able to substantiate their charges. And so Lysias could get no help from the people in the temple. He decided to interrogate Paul himself. So his soldiers carried Paul from the court of the Gentiles up the stairs into the barracks. And as Paul was carried away, the crowd shouted angrily, away with him. And certainly, That reminds us of Christ's arrest and his trial, where we read in Luke 23, 18 and following, but they all cried together, away with this man, and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison and an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. Again, in John 19, verse 15, and they cried about Christ's arrest. They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Paul said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. The world will always combat the truth. The world tried to get rid of Jesus, but Christ was resurrected finished his incarnational ministry, and lives within the hearts of his people. The world tried to get rid of Paul, but his arrest led to many trials where Paul had the opportunity, as we'll see, to share the gospel over and over and over again. The world is trying to cancel culture, and more importantly, they're trying to cancel Christ. But you and I have the light of the world living inside of us. We have an opportunity to make a difference, and I pray that we would be bold in our witness, fearless in our faith, and unwavering in our convictions. Let's look at our third heading, number three, the address from the Apostle Paul. Your next blank says, clearing up the confusion. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, verse 37, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Sicilia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. Well, up to this point, the whole situation going on here, Paul had been silent, but he has reached the top of the stairs. He's about to enter into the barracks and he asked the tribune, may I say something to you? Lysias then asked, somewhat surprised, what, do do you know Greek? I mean, the Greek language was the language of educated men, of cultured men, not of this common criminal as he supposed Paul to be. And so Lysias' next question reveals his assumption about Paul being that Egyptian terrorist, and it's what he thought he was, the tribune is saying in essence, so I take it you're not the Egyptian rebel who stirred up a revolt and led 4,000 assassins into the wilderness? It's a reference that Josephus gives us about this Egyptian that was some false prophet who some years later led a group of his followers who were terrorist assassins, and he led them just outside of Jerusalem onto the Mount of Olives where he proclaimed that the walls of Jerusalem would fall at his command and that the Romans would be driven out. 
But before that human prophecy could be fulfilled, because it was a human prophecy from this false prophet, the Roman troops led by Governor Felix arrived on the scene and they attacked the Egyptian and his followers and they soundly defeated them. And several hundred were killed or captured, but the rest, including the Egyptian, had vanished. These assassins would often be seen mingling with the crowds, and then they would stab their victim. They would often either sneak away into the crowd or brazenly join the mourners (coughs) to escape any detection. And so the assassins were especially active during the Jewish festivals such as Pentecost. And so Lysias most likely thought that the crowd had captured one of them, maybe even the Egyptian himself. But as we know, Paul was neither the Egyptian or an assassin. He states here he's a Jew from Tarsus, from Cilicia, which was no obscure city. In fact, at that time, Tarsus was known as a cultural center with a university rivaling even those of Athens and Alexandria. And so being a citizen of Tarsus explained the apostle's composure as well as his knowledge of Greek. And having identified himself, Paul kindly requests permission to speak to the people. And I think that it's important, again, that we note that Paul had class. He was cultured. He was intelligent. He was courteous, even though he was being falsely accused and arrested. Again, where do you think he learned that from? I think he learned it from the example of Jesus. And he knew that God was in control, even in this situation, to give him an opportunity to preach the gospel and to represent Christ. I think there's a lot we could learn from his example. You know, yesterday when we were at the conference, we were able to hear from Pastor David Hegg talking about worship and in that talk about worship, how do we reach the world? And I appreciated what he said at one point in the sermon, he stepped aside and said, you know what, I believe in the way that culture is going, a lot of us are at war with the culture. We just wanna fight the culture, demolish the culture, and we wanna see them fail. And then a lot of us are somehow, we're just kind of on the other side, we're kind of maybe just accepting what's going on. We're, we're either at war on one side, or maybe we're just kind of watching on the other side. And his, his takeaway was, we need to be somewhere in the middle. We gotta be somewhere where we're not at war against the culture, and we're not just kind of wimping out over here doing nothing. We're, we're supposed to win the culture. And in order to win the culture, there's gotta be a winsomeness to your approach, even in delicate and difficult situations like this, chaos, and then Paul, though, is using some tact, and he's using a strategy, and he's using this humble integrity of his own character, because his main goal wasn't to prevent death, but his main goal was to reach the crowd for Christ. His main goal was to reach whoever would listen, as we'll see him day after day through the rest of the book, sharing the gospel with all of those who put him in chains. And so that's what happens in verse 40. He's speaking to the crowd. He wants to clear it up. He does that with the tribune. And now he's going to speak to the crowd. Verse 40, when he had given him permission, Paul standing on the steps, mentioned with his people, or, or, or mentioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language saying, and again, there's your cliffhanger. In order to get what Paul's saying, you gotta come back in two weeks. 
We're not talking about this next week on Easter, people. We're talking fully on the resurrection of Christ. So in two weeks, we'll get to hear. He gives quite a defense in chapter uh, 22 that we want to look at in detail. But maybe for now, you could just look at that take-home section. How should we respond when others accuse us of things that we didn't say? I love Paul's response again. He's not attacking people. He's bringing clarity and wanting to preach the gospel. Number two, how can we be encouraged to trust God's providence throughout our trials? And even though Paul's going through an awful situation, he seems to be content with what God's doing. And then number three, how can we seek to glorify God in every situation, even if our safety is in jeopardy? You know what? This crowd says, away with him. They said, away with Christ. They said, away with Paul. And one day they may say, away with you. How will you respond in that day? The way you respond will be a testimony of your true faith and your true character. And you know what? It will all be worth it. Stand for Christ. Exalt him. Engage the culture. And let's do it together. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to look at this text and this narrative filled with drama, excitement, historical truths, and yet we see the calm, focused attempt of Paul to be faithful to his testimony, to articulate with great clarity his own witness to the gospel, and I pray that that would just bring us encouragement and bless our hearts as we want to consider how to stand firm in the midst of these times that we live, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.